0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to UnmistakableCreative.com slash 4Keys. Use the number 4, K-E-Y-S. That's UnmistakableCreative.com slash 4Keys. And download your free copy.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit
5: stripe.com
0: slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
5: And I call it mental fluidity. Even though it's good to have your project and be clear about it, You want to be able to recognize change and adapt to it in the appropriate way. And I'll be damned if I can quantify what appropriate means Mm -hmm. in this case. But you want people to be knowledge sponges. For example, I get people all the time saying, I want to, you know, uh, would you mentor me? And they talk about their product and that sort of thing. And I start asking them questions about, you know, who's your competitors, and, and uh, who else is doing something like this?" And a lot of times they'll say, well, nobody, and that sort of thing, and I pop onto the internet and do a search word around their things, and all of a sudden there's 40 competitors, and, and I say, you know, this this they haven't done their homework, you know, goodbye, I don't need you. You really have to be the world expert on the business that you're creating. My pleasure. Good fun to be here.
4: Yeah. Well, you know, I'd like to say that you're a man who needs no introduction, but amazingly enough, there, there was somebody who said, who's Nolan Bushnell? I said, well, he's the guy who founded Atari and hired Steve Jobs. So uh, on that note, uh, can you tell us a, a bit about your story, your journey, uh, your background and everything that has led you up to where you're at in the world today?
5: I think the, you know, if I go back to what I consider the breakpoints or the singularities in my existence. It was Mrs. Cook's third grade class in which I was allowed to play with the magic science box that was in the closet. And she assigned me to explain to the class, which she did with various things, you know, with, you know, one one week it was optics, another one it was, you know, plants, another one it was it was basically... She'd use the students as a way to uh, to sort of teach the other kids. And I was assigned the unit on electricity. And there were dry cells and lights and switches and, and electromagnets. And I put the things together, read the study plan, and was smitten. And I went home from school that day. And set up a card table in the corner of my bedroom and started tinkering and basically never stopped. I mean, I got every battery, every light, old flashlight. And I realized that you could actually put wires to a flashlight and I, you know, to a flashlight bulb and a battery, and you didn't need the flashlight housing at all. And that was magical to me. That uh, led me to a ham radio license and uh, you know setting up transmitters and receivers and talking to people all over the world and I had a neighbor who was a ham radio guy and um, he was sort of my early mentor and um, and that led me to entrepreneurship um, because the radios were Expensive. The parts were expensive, and you could not uh, divide your lawn mowing money and and uh, allowance into those uh, those transmitters. And without saying, gee, I'm going to be 35 before I get those. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, so what um, I discovered is that I knew enough electronics. This is at the age of 10. That I started my own you know, TV repair business, and uh, in those days, TVs were all based on vacuum tubes, and when a TV went out, it was because the vacuum tube had gotten gassy or or, or just worn out, and fundamentally, what you 'd have to do is take the back off, figure out which tube had gone bad, replace it, and the TV had work again um. So, in those days, a house call was five bucks. I charged 50 cents or a dollar. But I made money by marking up the tubes a lot. So, I got some inventory, figured out where to buy tubes wholesale, and um, created a business. And that bought my transmitters and receivers and what have you. But it really gave me this whole idea that. Don't work for somebody else, work for yourself. Figure out how to do it because that was in the days where minimum wage was uh, 50 cents or 75 cents an hour. (laughs) And, and, um, you know, I just thought that wasn't very cool. I could make a lot more than that by doing my other things. Probably fast forward to college where I was pursuing an engineering degree. And I can say that at ten years old, I decided I wanted to be an electrical engineer, and uh, I was pursuing that and um, sort of as a way to put myself through college, I started a little company called the Campus Company, which was a um, which took a big piece of paper, you know heavy 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 stock, and I Created the campus blotter, which was a the center was a calendar of events for the quarter. Um, I sold advertising all around it and gave it away free at the beginning of the quarter, and uh, that became extremely lucrative in in one university. And then I ended up doing it to the four universities that were in the Utah area at the time. I was born and raised in uh, just outside of Salt Lake City, and. Um, and you know the University of Utah BYU Utah State and Weber State all had the blessings of getting a campus water The economics were real simple like I could get them printed up for about five hundred dollars I'd sell three to five thousand dollars worth of advertising and pocket the difference and that was more than enough to keep me in uh, in style I drove a 190 SL Mercedes, uh, which was really cool as well as putting myself through college. So life was good. Um, But I got so good at selling the advertising that uh, I could do it literally part time during the summers um, because many of the advertisers would re up uh, quarter after quarter. And, um, and so I decided to get myself out of harm's way, and I got a job on the midway at the local amusement park. Now, it was a minimum wage job which but I was not doing it there to make money I was doing it to keep me from spending money because I knew if I was working I wouldn't be out you know running around having fun and spending money well, it turned out that um, I got good at it, and I really got a a real passion for games, and uh, I was promoted to be manager of the whole games department uh, the third year that I was there, uh, the third summer, and that put under my auspices an arcade, which gave me an a really strong understanding of the cost of arcade machines, how much they had to earn, what have you. Then, I guess to triangulate that, uh, I was in the electrical engineering department, and um, part of that department was a uh, professor called Dr. Evans, whose, whose center of gravity, if it was, was connecting... Big uh, displays up to the big computers, and uh, in the middle '60s when when I was in college, a guy at mit had um, had created a game called space war on the on the PDP series, and that software basically became viral was, you know this was before the internet. Um, and so somebody was shipping naturally a deck of cards, of, of uh, <laughs> cards to the uh, computer centers. But we all played Space Wars in the middle of the night, and uh, and so that was a triangulation. Which I said, gee, if I could take this game, put a quarter slot on it, and take it into one of my arcades, summer, the thing would make a lot of money. But. You divide 25 cents into a million-dollar computer, and the math didn't work. So, um, you know, this was when computers were in an air-conditioned room with an elevated floor and, uh, you know, looked like a, you know, big, long row of refrigerators. (laughs) So I guess that that, uh, experience, then I... Graduated, went to work for Ampex, which was also in the video um, business. They, and I learned more about video technology. Uh, met Ted Dabney, who was my partner, who I uh, asked to become a partner in doing the first video game. And that was, well, when I say the first video game, it was a raster scan technology. And, uh, and that's kind of the, the, the pathway
4: Hmm. that leads you to Atari. Correct. So let me ask you this, you know, I want to take a few steps back to the very beginning of this. Uh, you know, I love that you brought up this idea of singularities in your existence, which to me, I, I look at sort of as molding moments in our lives. And, you know, one of the things I, you know, look back at in my own life is how many of those I missed and, how often I've seen adults who miss those. And I'm really curious how you sort of reconnect with that. Um, if somehow you missed it in your childhood, because I don't think everybody finds it at age 10.
5: Yeah. I, I, I don't know. You know, it was, a, it was really an interesting thing that uh, if there was one thing that I'm blessed with and I have no idea how I got it is I'm really curious You know, I just really, um, I'm thirsty to understand how things work, what makes things work, what, you know, and uh, I mean, my parents had a world book encyclopedia and I can remember reading the the encyclopedia, sitting down and I'd say, well, I guess this is a, this is a day for, for Jay (laughs) and read, read all the, you know, and I, I wouldn't read all of them in detail, but uh, I really wanted to understand what was the knowledge of man, whether it be history or, or, or science or biology or, or uh, literature. Um, my mother used to force us kids in summers to, or when we weren't in school, And we'd be out playing, and we'd have to come in for lunch, and then she'd read for an hour to us. And we could choose the book. And I can remember being very fascinated by sort of science fiction at a very, very young age. And uh, I don't know if that was causal, but uh, it really worked for me. Mm -hmm.
4: You know, it's interesting you bring up curiosity, because I I always say curiosity has led to billions of dollars in value created uh, just because people were curious about you know, how something would work. And I, I always say, you know, the, the real drive behind this show and doing this for me has always been genuine curiosity.
5: Yeah. I, and I think that curiosity matched with passion for life. You know, there are a lot of people who get up and kind of don't meet the, meet the day with fascination about what what what's going to be new this day? What's going to be really great? <clears throat> and uh, if you can match that curiosity with passion and enthusiasm, you know the world is your oyster, and even more so now. Mm-hmm. I I, uh, I just I recently uh, wrote a book, Finding the Next Steve Jobs, which has been uh, extremely successful, surprisingly successful, <laughs> about um. Uh, uh, coming from a guy I might add just as a, as a footnote, I, I almost flunked freshman English. I, I can't spell. I'm <laughs> <laughs> and the thought of me writing a book was hilarious. Uh, but I did it and, uh, and had a ghostwriter and, uh, you know, while I, I can't construct good English sentences, Um, I can tell good stories, and so uh, my collaboration with Gene Stone was great, and we ended up with a good product. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, I think that right now, if you're curious and passionate, school is unnecessary, and we're finding more and more that the true Movers and shakers in society are not formally educated, and I was just doing a little research for a speech I'm doing because one of the things I'm saying is the credentials are becoming less important, and uh, and I I'm wondering whether or not schools really need to fundamentally reinvent themselves on the way knowledge is transferred in this world of knowledge at your fingertips and uh and perhaps focus more on how do you keep students passionate and curious as opposed to dogmatic dogmatically lecturing Mm -hmm. um just 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 some idle thoughts there (laughs)
4: <laughs> well, you hit one of my personal hot buttons because I jokingly say that I'm a failed byproduct of the education system, uh, you know. Because and I've told this story very briefly. You know, my sister and I had very identical upbringings. She ended up in you know Yale uh, as an anesthesiology resident, and I, you know, didn't survive at all in the corporate world, uh, despite you know following a very similar educational path. And I think that education right now is a, a one size fits all solution. Uh, And I I really actually want to dig deeper into this part of the conversation. Uh, You know, it's interesting because I think that one of the things that has happened is that we have been indoctrinated into conformity to some degree because of the fact that education has existed the way it has for so long. And I'm really curious, you know, one, what your thoughts are on how we build a better future uh, for preparing the young people of the world today to be productive members of society um, and transfer knowledge in the way that we need to. Uh, And, and, you know, where you see all of this going, I mean, are, are universities going to be out of business?
5: You know, there's, there's a couple of functions of education and probably the most The most used function of education is warehousing. And there is, in the world of two family, uh, two breadwinners, what do you do with the kids during the day? You warehouse them in the (laughs) school. And and I'm I'm using purposefully, you know, strong language, but, but a lot of that's it. The other thing about college, in many cases, is extended adolescence, where kids aren't quite ready to grow up and take on the responsibilities of an adult life. Um, I mean, colleges, particular, a lot of colleges, are starting to take on the aspects of being a really nice uh, spa or club Mm -hmm. um you know great athletic facilities and 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 a a lot of fun things that can go on and then hanging out without parental supervision hey it's all good um but that but that's not necessarily a good use of money particularly if it's being funded by student debt um I like to talk about the reinvention of indentured servitude. Um, whereas, you know, in the 1700s, you could indenture yourself for passage to the New World, but you had to work it off for, you know, sometimes a three to five year indenture. Um, today, and, and of course, you sold yourself into indenture for, Future opportunities. Well, the same thing's going on right now in college. You're selling yourself into indenture uh, by taking on this debt that has to be paid back, can't be expunged by bankruptcy uh, for a better future. Uh, and the question becomes one is that a good trade off? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's definitely not a good trade-off in certain. I mean, they've they've done all kinds of studies. It's a horrible trade-off in certain things, like if uh, if you go into student debt to become a uh, you know a, a a bureaucrat or a civil servant or to uh, become a paleontologist or uh, medieval French literature. You know these these things are are not able to give you gainful employment, the, the economic benefit. Now, the social and psychological benefit of becoming a rounder, more fluent person in medieval French, French literature, I don't know. I mean, it's, but it's, I think that's a hobby. It's not an occupation. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, uh, but those are some, some of the things. So so maybe the right answer is to focus on young kids. Young kids across the board start out enthusiastic and with passion, unless they've had really damaged childhoods. Uh, And, I mean, if you go into a kindergarten class, everybody's happy, everybody's doing stuff, um, and it's, it's, it's pretty good. That gets trained out of you. Uh, That enthusiasm goes away uh, in a lot of schools. And that is, uh, I think, the the worst truncation to um, train out creativity, train out enthusiasm. uh, Because a lot of school is really boring and really a lot of drudgery. And to have to sit and endure it uh, is not good for the spirit or the psyche.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, you're hitting so many hot buttons for me. You know, I think about the student debt piece because, you know, you said, French, you know, French literature. I got an MBA and I, I got student debt from that. And I thought about sort of, you know, what are my options? I said, you know, fine. If I go and get a job at the end of my life, what I'll accomplish is having paid off that debt and that's it. Um, like I look at friends, and I'm like, so basically, what you're telling me is you're going to spend the rest of your life, and at the end of it, your final accomplishment will be that you have your your main contribution to society will be that you have paid off that debt. Um, and it's you know, like you said, I mean, we can't get out of it through bankruptcy, but I, I question if that you know if that becomes our purpose in life, are we robbing ourselves and the world of what we could actually offer them?
5: No question about it, particularly since there's so many good opportunities to get whatever education you really want. And there's what I call a credential gap right now. That a lot of times people are going to school to get a credential not focusing on how much they actually know. And a lot of the inspired companies today are focusing on what people know, not their credentials. Mm -hmm. Like Google doesn't even care whether you've you know gone to college or not. They take a look at your code or your accomplishments, and that's all they care about. Uh, and more, and, and Apple to a, to a large extent as well. And these are companies that are really kicking it out of the park right now. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, it's interesting because I, I interviewed for Google a while back, and I've heard they re- basically rehauled their entire hiring process. Because uh, I remember sitting thinking, "Okay, I'm never going to get hired in here." Like, with, you know, the brain teasers they threw at me. I was like, "Okay, this was a disaster."
5: Yeah, it, sometimes it can the the interviewing process can be a little bit stilted, but at the same time, uh, by not. Focusing on credentials, I think, is a great step in the right direction. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think that that really...
4: Nowadays, I mean, we have such an opportunity to create a body of work. Like, I look at... uh, I wondered, you know, having chosen what I have, at one point I questioned whether I'd be able to ever get a job again, but then I realized I don't have a resume. I have a substantial body of work and projects that are far more useful than a piece of paper with a bunch of bullet points on it.
5: Absolutely. That's so true. And and, uh, I've actually... Thought that there might be an interesting business called TestForYourCredential.com, and just let people come in, do a bunch of tests, and and issue a credential. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, it and and people can say, well, you know, it, how how do you assure that people are are, are not phoning it up? And I think that there's a lot of things that can be done to make that credential for the self-taught, for the homeschooled, for what have you, valuable. Mm -hmm. So
0: let's do this.
4: Let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, You know, one of the things that I think is interesting, you brought up two things. One is early mentors uh, in your life, and I'm really curious how we learn to recognize when these types of people show up in our lives because. You know, any person that I have talked to who seems to have achieved something of great significance, there's always somebody behind them or somebody who kind of gave them a push in the right direction or really was a guide in that process. And I'm really curious, you know, where do you, how do you recognize those people um, and, and make sure that you don't let them go?
5: You know, I, when I look back on my mentors, I, I'm not sure that I was aware I was being mentored at the time. It was a thing where they were instrumental in shaping me, and uh, you know, and I can I can name them, uh, but it's a retrospective kind of naming. Uh, like I had no idea that Steve Jobs considered me to be one of my one of his mentors. I just thought we used to like to hang out and, and talk, and then of course he worked for me for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until the Isaacson book, which was based on a whole bunch of interviews with Steve, uh, before his death that, uh, he named me as one of his sig- significant mentors and, and, uh, totally unaware, totally unaware on my part.
4: Hmm. You know, one of the, the sort of patterns, um, I keep seeing throughout your story, uh, in the beginning part of this is this very keen awareness for recognizing opportunity. Yeah. And let me ask you something. Is that something that can be cultivated or is that something you're born with? And if it can be cultivated, how do we cultivate it?
5: Boy. (laughs) Uh, I think I've always felt that a significant part of what has been a benefit to me is I love science fiction and I think I've always got one foot in this world of a possible future and seeing disconnects where that possible future is pot. The, the probable future is possible today and nobody's designed it. The other thing is I, because because of my curiosity, I I, kind of know a little bit about a whole bunch of different things and I, I draw connections sometimes. And, uh, and yeah, I, 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 I've been able to, to spot things that need to be done. Like right now I've probably got 15 business plans that are marinating in my shelf uh, of, of businesses that I would like to have the time to work on. But I early on found out that if I worked on too many things, they all fail. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. That's uh, that's something I learned the hard way.
5: The nice thing about having a bunch of business plans marinating is that, uh, I'm willing to share them with people and uh, say, Hey, you go and work on this. Um, we'll start a company, I'll mentor you on it and we'll share the profits. And, uh, and all of a sudden, if I, if I can let go, it works in a a good way. Mm -hmm.
4: So, you know, I think this will make a perfect, uh, setup to talk a bit about, you know, the book. Uh, but you know, you, you mentioned mentoring people. I mean, when you look at people, That you want to work with, that you want to you know help out, that you want to guide to their own process of success. I mean, what do you look for in people? I mean, do you recognize certain traits in them that you can see that there is a future in this person that they've got sort of you know whatever it is that will enable you know make them successful?
5: Yeah, two or three things. Probably the number one is enthusiasm. There, there are people in life that are alive, and there are people in life that are just taking up space. And uh, and the people who are really driven, you can tell about it. They're passionate about life and, and what their project is. And they have a lot of, of real passion. This Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
4: Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing
3: homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
2: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend.
5: They have to have a certain level of self-confidence because entrepreneurship's hard. You're, you have a lot of people telling you you can't do it. And without that self-confidence, you can be dissuaded and, and grit, if you would, or, or perseverance is an absolute critical part of success uh, because you got to punch through the adversity times. Can, and the, those the adverse times will happen. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I look for those kind of two things I, I call it grit and enthusiasm there's another thing that is really hard to quantify and, it's ca- and I call it mental fluidity uh, even though it's good to have your project and be clear about it you want to be able to recognize, change, and adapt to it in the appropriate way. And I'll be damned if I can quantify what appropriate means mm-hmm. in this case. But you, you want people to be knowledge sponges. Um, for example... I get people all the time saying, "I want to," you know. Uh, would you mentor me? And they talk about their product and that sort of thing. And I start asking them questions about, you know, who's your competitors and and uh, who else is doing something like this. And they're, they're a lot of times they'll say, "Well, nobody," and that sort of thing. And pop onto the internet and do a search word around their things and all of a sudden there's 40 competitors and and I say, you know, this this they haven't done their homework. You know, goodbye. I don't need you. Uh you really have to be the world expert on the business that you're creating.
4: Have you ever jumped online to look up a word and somehow ended up falling down a wormhole called Facebook for hours? Or are you the kind of person who checks a text on your phone and ends up watching Instagram stories about mountain goats for 20 minutes? Or checked email and ended up looking up the weather in Costa Rica or reading why people use more ketchup in Montana? I have done all of those things, truly losing hours, days, maybe even months, who knows? And it wreaked havoc on my personal and professional life. I finally realized if I didn't get a handle on this, I would be doomed, completely doomed. So about 10 years ago, I decided I needed to learn everything there is about distraction and everything there is on how to master it. And I actually managed to do it. And the result of it is the podcast, the books I've written, and this course called Distraction Mastery, where I teach you how to master your distractions in under 10 minutes a day. And you don't need to give up social media, email, or even watching mountain goat videos on Instagram stories if that's your thing. And you definitely don't need to have discipline and superhuman willpower. Distraction Mastery teaches you how to kill distractions and feel good about your day, leaving you with plenty of time to do what you want. And you can get it at unmistakablecreative.com slash distraction mastery, all one word, and use the promo code 80 spelled out in caps. Again, that's E I G H T Y to get it for just $29.99. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash distraction mastery. I love that. So you brought up adversity and I I actually, I want to do some digging into this. Um, Can you tell us any of the really challenging times in your life. Okay. And, and, you know, another, another question that I always have around this, and, and it, this sort of crucible moment seems to be a pretty common theme for every single person I've interviewed. And it also becomes the biggest catalyst for their change and their growth. Uh, so two, two questions. One is, you know, story or, or experiences from your life that really challenged you and, and kind of pushed you to your edges. And, you know, do you think that there's something that differentiates people who come out of that having grown versus letting it destroy them.
5: Absolutely. I I think that, um, a, a difficult time for me that I think helped form me a great deal was my dad died when I was 15 and I worked with him summers and, uh, uh, We were good friends, and and I learned an awful lot from him, but he died. And all of a sudden, my expected trajectory was really called into question. And and I think that uh, there's no question that he would have helped me in college, but I had two younger sisters, and though there was some life insurance and things like that, I felt that at that point in time, at uh, 15 years old, that I could not take money from my, my parents anymore, that I had to be self-sufficient, with the exception of living at home uh, for high school. But all of a sudden, my expectations of, of being independent versus dependent drastic, drastically shifted. And so that's kind of one set of ad- adversity in which, you know, it, it changed my attitude and, and I think a lot for the better. I think the other big adversity situation was uh, one summer at Atari, the company almost went bankrupt. Uh, the video game business was not considered a business that anybody wanted to invest in. <laughs> I know that sounds really strange, but uh, <laughs> one of the problems of being first with anything is people say, oh, you know you're not making steel or shipping wheat you know what's you know why is why are games a business, even though we were you know we were doing you know 30000000 dollars a year in sales, but um, you know Atari started with two hundred fifty dollars of capital, and so the hardest part of Atari was figuring out how to grow the company without investments. And, uh, and you know, that was always a struggle. Uh, and we did it by, we were building machines, coin-operated games at the time, with, uh, and we get 30 to 60-day terms on the parts. We'd turn the parts into a game in two or three days, ship them for cash, and that ran the company in positive cash flow. Works wonderfully until you make a mistake and you get a whole bunch of games that you can't sell for cash. And that happened one summer when we designed in a part that failed, uh, and all of a sudden we had a a factory floor full of games that could not be finished. And... uh, and we just basically had no cash. And uh, and it was, you know, people have said, you know, what did you do? I said, well, we just hunkered down and, and punched through it and finally got the games working and, and were able to start shipping. But for a three or four month period in the summer, we uh we had lawsuits against us for non payment of bills that we got a default judgment they'd send a sheriff to to attach assets we'd make sure there was no money left in the the checking account so they you know that's all they really want to do is they want to attach your bank account and uh um, at one time we had i think seven different bank accounts so that the, the money would be always in a bank account that they didn't have the number on <laughs> you know we just worked through it and uh People have asked me. They said, "Nolan, what? You know, I'm. I think I'm going to. My company's going out of business. Should I go declare bankruptcy?" And I said, "Well, I don't know. Tell me how, how many payrolls have you missed?" And he said, "Well, none." And I said, "Well, how many lawsuits have you? Have, how many default judgments do you have?" And they said, "Well, none." And I said, "Oh, you got three or four months, guy. <laughs> you know, give me a break." Mm-hmm. <laughs>
4: Do you think there's, there's something internally built into somebody like you that allows you to navigate the emotional uncertainty of something like that?
5: Absolutely. Um, I decided as a young man that I was an existentialist, that I really in my gut view life as an adventure. And it allows you to kind of externalize yourself a little bit. So when things are even really shitty, you can say, "Boy, that's shitty, but it's interesting."
4: <laughs>
5: <laughs> you know, and and uh, and by able to kind of suck yourself out, and uh, and I've always and and I can remember my dad always telling me, you know. An undefined fear of the unknown is fearful. But in most cases, you can quantify what would happen if the worst happens. And so I do that. Um, I always say, okay, what happens if Atari fails? Does my life stop? No. Do I lose my house? No. Do I lose my car? No. Is my family intact? Yes. Those are the important things, you know, and uh, and most things in business, that's just kind of rounding error on your life. Hmm.
4: I love that. Well, let's, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit uh, and let's talk about something I know probably a million people have asked you um, and I'm hoping to ask in a bit of a different way. I mean, you know, you wrote the book uh, Finding the Next Steve Jobs, which really – Uh, that was what got my attention. I read the book and absolutely loved it. For those of you guys listening, highly recommend it. We'll link it up in the show notes. So I have uh, quite a few questions around this. I mean, when you met somebody like Steve, could you see then what he would ultimately become?
5: Absolutely not. Uh, I knew he was going to be extraordinary. I, I can't say that I felt that he was going to run one of the biggest companies in the world. Um, but I saw him as a passionate, powerful person. Um, I mean, I like to joke and say that I, I turned down a third of Apple computer for $50,000. Right.
4: Which, I've heard,
5: which was really a mistake, but, uh, uh but it was a thing where I, I thought that Steve was very rough around the edges uh, to be a major entrepreneur. And I think when he when he started Apple it was like 22 or 23, um, you know, very very young. And I always thought I was on the young end of things, and I was 29, I think, when I started Atari. But uh, the. Uh, it's hard to say, you know, what the tra- trajectory is. Uh, I think that uh, I think that I'd have to leave it with saying that uh, I felt that Steve was extraordinary. Okay. Uh, without saying that I, I I didn't have any inkling that he was going to be as powerful and important as he was.
4: So, you know, you're talking about finding the next Steve Jobs, which I think is, is you know, really a fascinating idea, um, you know, and I look at people like Elon Musk, I mean, my business partner, I've talked about it. Do you think that that's something that is cultivated or do you think that's something that we're born with?
5: I have really no idea on that. You know, like, like I say, I don't, I can't really put a finger on. what it is that I do that is unique. You know, I, you know, it's kind of like the fish is the last person or the last object to discover water. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of who you are. That would argue that an awful lot of it is maybe genetic. But at the same time, I recognize a lot of things that my parents did that were extraordinary at the time. I mean, my parents let me do a lot of stuff that was kind of dangerous. I mean, I uh, and and we had a house that had a whole bunch of stuff you know, a wood pile that I could grab boards and build stuff with and you know the backyard that they let me dig a deep hole and turn into a hut until the spiders took it over, things like that. You know, that was a, or when I was doing ham radio, how many parents would you allow their sons to put a red and white striped antenna pole on the roof of their house with a red light on top of it? I mean, that's, it's not very fashionable. I can tell you that.
4: <laughs> so, you know i mean the fundamental premise of this book to me is is you know finding the next steve jobs i mean how are we going to find the next steve jobs in your opinion i mean are there do, do you see potential in people right now i mean do you see places where that's going to come from industries where that's going to come from or, or any trends that might indicate where it's going to happen or how it's going to happen
5: well understand that that what i what the dot 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 is that i believe that there are thousands of steve jobs out there and that What makes Steve unique is he was creative and had a vision, but he also had a vehicle, particularly later on, in which he could make that vision a reality. I think there's a lot of people that are equivalently talented to Steve that are working for companies in which their creativity is stifled or their work product is on the cutting room floor. And and the one of the main messages that I wanted to give is just say yes more to corporations if they are looking for the next Steve Jobs, don't look any further than your own business processes and open them up and try things. Be uh, you know because there are people in your organization right now that would love to do some revolutionary projects that are currently being cut down by layers of bureaucracy and management.
4: You know, I love this idea that you brought up of, you know, creativity, a vehicle, and a vision. And I'm wondering how, you know, one, we tap into our own creativity to develop our vehicle and connect it to our vision, which I realize is a very complicated question.
5: Well, it's actually... It it talks about the book I'm working on right now, which is the working title is Micro Entrepreneurship. And I assert that what is important is to really right-size your first businesses and start early and you know be entrepreneurial early and often is is kind of the the buzzword because there are a lot of Kids out of college right now that are that say they want to be an entrepreneur, but their mind hasn't right sized. They they want to do the next Facebook or they want to create the next Apple computer, but it's like wanting to be in the major leagues with never ever playing Sandlot ball. And I think that everybody would be better off if they just. Found a way to have a side business. You know, don't don't hire yourself yet. You know, stay working, work on it nights and weekends. Because if you're not willing to work nights and weekends, don't be an entrepreneur anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and start planting seeds, seeing how things work. How do, how can you grow that? And can you get it to the point where all of a sudden you can hire yourself, and then hire other people, and then. Move forward. Um, and, and a lot of times, these businesses that look tiny from the outset actually grow to be massive. And, uh, and so, right sizing your business, I think, is, some, is, is something that people need to think more about, um, particularly on their initial. And, and the rule is if you have to raise money from friends and family. Uh, that's too big. You know, you, you, you have a blocker. Uh, start a business that you can fund out of your back pocket as your first space. After a while, then you save money that you've done that. And if uh, you can't put in half your own money uh, to your friends and family, you know, not enough. And that's sort of your next stage. And about three or four more stages, then you're ready to maybe do angel investing and try for something that's, that could be bigger.
4: You know, I love that because, you know, as I listen to you tell this story, I think about, you know, our own journey of building what, you know, people know today as Unmistakable Creative. I mean, five years ago, I plugged a microphone into a laptop and started recording interviews on a blog and now we've published books, we've produced events. We're basically evolving into forming a full-blown media company. But exactly, we got here after five years. Yeah, which is an eye blink in a lot
5: of ways.
3: <laughs> yeah,
4: I guess it is. Uh, so, Nolan, you know, I, I want to ask you one other thing uh, about wealth and wealth creation and and kind of how you view money in the world. Uh, Because, you know, money is such an emotional hot button for so many of us. Uh, And I'm really curious, you know, being where you're at, you know, with the success that you've had as an entrepreneur and in your life, I mean, how do you view money and what are your views on wealth?
5: You know, I really, I've actually tried to understand happiness and the correlation of you know what makes people happy, and it's pretty clear that once you get above subsistence poverty poverty, everybody's pretty much equally happy, independent of how much wealth you have so money really doesn't buy happiness you can buy a lot of things that are fun, but that it, it doesn't really affect your inner happiness um, I think that money is an enabler. Uh, it kind of determines how big of a poker game you can play in. And so the nice thing about having a certain amount of wealth is that it gives you discretion uh, to be able to do other things. The wonderful thing about the United States that I, is that we really have an entrepreneurial ethic that we make a lot of money and then we give it away. Um, I mean, there, there are very few, what I'd call real dynasties in the United States. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you could, you could look at maybe the Waltons, but they give a lot of money away. Gates giving a lot of Carnegie gave a lot of Ford foundation gave a lot of I mean, it's, it's one of these things where, where I think the, the neat thing about capitalism is that it makes decisions about capital, puts it in the hands of people who have shown they were able to use capital well. For example, a lot of European companies, uh, countries try to determine who the entrepreneurial class is and fund them with never any good success because the people who are making decisions have been are bureaucrats. They don't have any idea about what capital is and and how, how it's deployed. And a lot of people don't understand that it almost doesn't matter who owns the capital. Um it's how it's deployed. For example, you want to be able to get foreign investment. That means that foreigners own the capital. Why do you want that investment? Because the capital builds buildings, you know funds factories, does all kinds of wonderful things. but you, but the fact that it's owned by another country is not a big deal. Same thing with individuals, you know, rich individuals, they're not going out and eating a billion dollars worth of steak every night. <laughs> you know and uh, you know, it's really. They are directing investments into areas using their brains and their capability, so the the wealth gap that everybody talks about is really stupid uh, Do they want to take the wealth away from the people who are smartest about wealth creation and give it to somebody who's the stupidest i e government it just makes no sense so so with that um that's my little rant but um but I think that my happiness really comes as much from my family and the projects that I'm working on. I, I just love to work on projects, and they give me a lot of happiness to, you know, take something that hasn't existed before and make it happen today.
4: Wow. Wow. Well, uh. uh, So one last question, actually two more questions, and then we'll wrap things up. Uh, You know, I'm really curious, kind of, you know, what is your vision of the future of the web, technology, and business, all kind of working together? This is just out of personal curiosity.
5: Well, the the thing that's very interesting is that the web, as a worldwide connector, is fragile and yet it's robust. You see countries trying to modify the free access of information and they're universally failing at it. Uh, doesn't does that mean that they're going to fail at it forever? Probably not. But or 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 probably. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those it, scary things, but clearly the web is changing everything when it comes to geographical boundaries market friction um, i mean look at alibaba um, it used to be you'd have to get a chain of of, uh, of advisors and and agents to find you a appropriate manufacturer in China now it's two clicks away uh, for a product um, and there's there's this Elimination of friction in everything from pricing to products to uh, things, it's, it's, it's incredible. Of course, one of the biggest things that I think is going to change everything is the autonomous vehicle. And a lot of people think of it as Google But virtually every car company in the world has an auto drive thing uh, section going on. And uh, there will be auto drive cars on the road within three to four years. And it will change everything. And so in some ways, the automobile becomes an extension of the web. Um, And so so that the... Web, which is about bits, starts controlling more and more atoms, if you would, in terms of the transportation infrastructure. And that's happening everywhere. Nest and, uh, you know, the connectivity of, of your objects, the, the Internet of Things, massively changing, where uh, where things just become smart. And... Uh, you know, it, it it will lead to a better lifestyle for us, and and uh, a lot of very interesting uh, challenges. Interesting. I mean, I don't want people to be able to hack my car or my <laughs> house, but but they probably will. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
4: Uh, so, Nolan, one last question for you, and this is how we close all our interviews uh, here at the Unmistakable Creative. You know, I mean, you've had such an amazing life and witnessed some of the most brilliant people and, and, you know, who've done some amazing things yourself. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
5: Well, a lot of times, (laughs) history is written by the victors. And being unmistakable often happens to people who, We're part of the shepherds of interesting technologies. Um, I mean Steve gets credit for an awful lot of the work product of some brilliant people as I do and so uh, I always like to the quote that Walt Disney had that when he was asked, you know, what do you do Mr. Disney? And he said, well you, you know, do you do you, write, do you draw the pictures? And he said, no. Do you work on the parks? He said, no. And he says, well, I'm, I'm more like a honeybee who just sort of takes ideas from one place to another. And so I think sometimes we who have been able to shepherd a group of talented people to some amazing outcomes, uh, we get branded as being remarkable when, in fact, we've, uh, we've just been able to be there uh, well, all this stuff was happening. Mm.
4: Well, Nolan, uh, let me say, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your insights with our listeners here at Unmistakable Creative. Uh, you know, a friend of mine said, trust me, Nolan gives an amazing interview and I can see why now. And, uh, this has definitely been one of my favorite chats we've had on the show in five years.
5: Well, thank you very much. And, uh, watch for brain, right? This is a commercial. Sure. Uh, Go into brainrush.com. I've got a little educational software company, and we're doing some very interesting things with brain science, and uh, you'll be able to learn things faster than ever before. And one of our objectives is to teach kids so quickly that they have no chance to get bored and turned off with education. And so that's kind of my goal.
4: Amazing. Well, again, I I can't thank you enough. Uh, This has been just absolutely fascinating. And uh, for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.